we are looking in this series of sermons at the life of David. And we're closing in on the end of his life. Today's text begins with the words, these are the last words of David. And it might surprise us to find that we are still quite a long way in terms of words and stories and chapters. We're actually quite a long way from David's actual death. And in the following chapters and stories, David actually has a lot to say. Um, So these aren't, from the perspective of the flow of the narrative, these aren't David's last words. But rather what we're looking at is David's legacy. Uh, And we have material that uh, has not been compiled uh, in chronological order, uh, in the order in which it happened in real life, but rather has been grouped together so that we encounter it in the order that the narrator wants us to encounter it. Uh, David's legacy, therefore, is presented to us in several parts. We are shown David the man of prayer, and we uh, looked at that last week. Then David in his own words, then David and his disciples, and then one last story about the lasting legacy of David's kingship. And with that, the book of Second Samuel closes David's legacy. David will remain as a character in the first uh, couple of chapters of the first book of Kings. As that book opens, David's still with us. In fact, he doesn't die until the second chapter. But in that book, David is only briefly a supporting character. The star of that show will be Solomon, at least initially. But for this week, what do we learn about David from his own words? Um, And what do we learn about David from his disciples? David and his legacy. Well, verses 1 to 7 is David, his legacy in his own words. And in what follows, I'm going to use my own translation, which uh, differs a bit from the NIV, but but is very similar to some uh, older and more rigidly literal translations. Older translations, perhaps like the King James and the New American Standard Bible. I don't mean uh, this to be, of course, any slight on the NIV translation. It's a translation I love, and it's the one that I use for my own devotions. Uh, But rather, I offer my own translation, uh, not to supplant, but rather to augment what we already have uh, in our hands. Uh, So here goes uh, verse 1. And these are the last words of David, an oracle of David, son of Jesse, and the oracle of the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and sweet psalmist of Israel. The elaborate and lengthy introduction to David's words celebrates his qualifications for kingship of Israel. There's a genealogy, son of Jesse, reminding us that he was of the tribe of Judah, the tribe to which the scepter of kingship belonged, Genesis 49. 
He was God's choice, raised up by God as king, as required by the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 17 and 18. He was anointed with oil like a priest by the prophet Samuel and anointed with the Holy Spirit by God in order that he might be Messiah, anointed one in Hebrew, or Christ, anointed one in Greek. The mention of Jacob connects David's role with Jacob's role. God used Jacob to create a nation. God used David to create a kingship. The sweet psalmist of Israel, or the sweet singer of Israel, or hero of Israel's songs. He was, of course, both of these things, all of these things an inspired musician-songwriter, as well as the inspiration for many other people's songs too. Why was he so favoured by God? Why so successful? Verses 2 to 4. The Spirit of Yahweh speaks in me, and his word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke to me. The Rock of Israel said, A man ruling with justice, ruling in the fear of God. It's like the light of the morning, the rising of the sun on the morning of no clouds. After brightness, after rain, comes grass from the earth. David, being filled with the Holy Spirit, was, of course, a prophet. God spoke to him and through him. When a ruler rules with justice or with righteousness in the fear of God, it changes everything. Uh, And it's a refreshing change. And it's a life-giving change. It's a new day. It's like grass after, after rain. That David ruled with or in righteousness or with or in justice means, of course, two interrelated things. It means that David was in right relationship, close relationship with God. He prayed and he thanked and praised God and he asked God to help him and he asked God to forgive him. He kept short accounts with the Lord. It also means, secondly, of course, that David did the right thing. He could be trusted to rule without corruption or duplicity or dishonesty or hidden agenda. Because David worshipped God rather than idols, he copied God. As we have seen over the last few years, we have seen this. David, he tells the truth even when it hurts him. He is kind and compassionate and merciful even to his enemies And he forgives just as he has been forgiven. That David ruled in the fear of God means that David understood himself to be answerable to God. David did his best to live in submission to the written word of God, what we would call the Bible, what he would have known as the Torah or the law of Moses. He was also in submission to other prophets who also heard from God and brought God's word to him and to the people. 
Notably, when the prophet Nathan rebuked David for his sins relating to Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, David repented rather than ordering Nathan's execution. And as we've seen, David was in submission to God's wisdom, whatever the source, whether the beautiful and intelligent Abigail or the unwashed battalions of his foot soldiers. He listened to godly wisdom. David was an exceedingly rare breed, a ruler who could listen. An ancient Near Eastern king who didn't think of himself as the absolute, absolute unchallengeable dictator of everything. David was a refreshing change. The last line, after brightness, after rain, comes grass from the earth, testifies to the fact that under such leadership, people flourish and things grow. Things develop rather than stagnate, change rather than become embedded in tradition. Is not the reason for it thus, my house is with God? For this reason, he made an everlasting covenant with me, arranged in every detail, and he is keeping watch for the sake of all my salvation and for every one of my desires. Has he not, for this reason, caused my house to flourish? It was safe for God to keep on saving David, to keep on blessing David, for God to keep on granting David the desires of his heart. It was safe for God to do, to do this because David wasn't an idolater. He didn't have idols before his eyes or in his heart. Worshipping this desire or that desire, but rather he had them surrendered in submission to God. But wicked men are like thorns. Cast aside all of them, because they cannot be taken by the hand. And the man who touches them accomplishes the task with iron tools and wooden spears and into fire to burn, to burn on the spot. This is a beautifully poetic description of the ministry of a righteous king which necessarily includes the destruction of the wicked. The symbolic meaning of uh, thorns or thorny plants in the Bible, the symbolic meaning is that they are injurious for, injurious for two reasons. Firstly, they pose an immediate threat, injuring those who touch them. Secondly, they pose as a nuisance, taking up valuable space and resources that could be used for crops, vines, fruit trees. The wicked, uh, in other words, those who ignore God and break his rules, the wicked are like thorns. How so? They cannot be taken by the hand. This clever wordplay twists the fact that you need protection to grasp a thorn. You need heavy gloves and pruning shears and rakes, tools of iron and wood in order to deal with thorny bushes. 
but also that you can't take the wicked by hand. They will not be led. They will not be taught. They refuse to change. They refuse to repent. But this earth and the Lord who rules it and owns it, they will tolerate their presence only for so long. These verses, of course, prepare us well for Jesus, who fulfills David's qualifications and David's ministry with perfection. Son of David, tribe of Judah, prophet, priest and king, filled with the Spirit, Messiah and Christ, perfectly in submission to God's word, even to baptism by John, perfectly in submission to his Father's will, even to death and death on a cross. The author and the subject of the Psalms, both. One who came into the world as the light of dawn on a cloudless day. The one who makes things flourish, giving life to the world. And the one who gathers the weeds so as to be burned up, but the wheat into the barn. After brightness, after rain, comes grass from the earth. The chronicles of the legacy of King David continue now with a lengthy description of David's disciples, David's mighty warriors, his war heroes. And what we see is that, indeed, things did flourish, things did grow, things did develop. You see, when David first appeared in the story of the people of Israel, the armies of Israel were used to losing. And they were used to losing to their neighbours, the Philistines. To be sure, there had been victories under King Saul. But on the day that David first appears on the battlefront, teenage David was the only person not intimidated by Goliath the giant. But now, here at the end of David's reign, there are... 40 plus men in Israel who could have done what David did on that day. For more than 40 men are named in verses 8 to 39. We see that David's leadership was of a sort that enabled and encouraged others. He has multiplied himself 40-fold and things developed. There was one group called the Three, and there was another group called the Thirty. Specialization within the special forces. But David, at the end of his career, was gloriously redundant. Well, we live in an age of leadership seminars and leadership experts and leadership strategies. David's leadership strategy is presented to us only in broad outline, but with enough clarity for us to know what it, what it was. And his leadership strategy was this. He prayed. He worshipped God. 
He obeyed God's rules. He did things God's way. And his legacy is something for us to think about. When, when I am done in this particular ministry or that particular job or, or, or vocation or occupation, what will be my legacy? Have I trained or enabled others to do what I'm doing? Have I made myself gloriously redundant? Or have I actually worked hard to protect my own patch? Are there, are, are there now others who can do what I'm doing? Or does my organisation or community actually need me more than ever? Am I redundant? Or is it all about me? A second thing that stands out to me is that the six descriptions of daring deeds in verses 8 to 39 are six descriptions of remarkable courage, not being afraid of overwhelming opposition or of great adversity or of overpowering strength. Not being afraid, courage. Actually, we don't hear a word about how any of these men felt whether or not they felt fear, we know for sure that David often felt fear on the battlefield. He was often terrified. And we know this because he prays about it in the Psalms. But whether or not these men felt fear, their courage is shown not by their feelings, but their courage is shown by what they did. And they learnt not to be controlled by their fears. And insofar as this was true, they learnt not to fear, that is, not to obey, evil. Well, now, in addition to uh, COVID-19, there are two other global pandemics that we should be aware of. Two global pandemics, two things actually vastly more contagious and virulent than the virus COVID-19. And those two things are fear and courage. Fear and courage, they are both contagious. I'm aware that I can infect other people with my fears if I'm not careful. And I'm very aware that I can catch, like a cold, other people's fears, if I'm not careful. But courage is also contagious. When David swallowed his fear of Goliath and brought him down to size with his sling, his audience realised in that moment that they hadn't needed to be frightened of Goliath. Goliath had his weaknesses. He wasn't invulnerable. And, and, and this is the material point, no enemy, however frightening, however big, however overwhelming, is anything at all compared to the power of God. To, compared to the power of God at work for and through his people. And David saw that actually Goliath, Goliath in challenging God's people was challenging God. And actually, that's just a joke. David wasn't frightened. 
The, the functional upshot of all this is that if you want to be an encouraging person, if you w- want to give people courage, if you want to be an encouraging person like, say, Barnabas was in the book of Acts, um, as he was a, a great encouragement to so many others, for that is what his name means, son of encouragement. If you want to be an encouraging person, then the way to do that is to act courageously, as Barnabas acted courageously, and trust that your courage is contagious, because actually it is highly contagious, giving courage to others around you. And one last thing that stands out to me in this passage is the twice-mentioned importance of standing your ground. In verses 9 to 10, the story of uh, Eliezer, the the Philistines had the Israelites on the run. The Israelites were retreating, but Eliezer stood his ground, verse 10. In verses 11 to 12, the story of Shammah, Again, the Philistines get the Israelites on the run. They were fleeing. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. In both stories, the armies of Israel come down with a highly contagious and virulent form of fear. It infects them all. They've all come down with it and they're on the run. They're running away. And the problem with running away on a battlefield, of course, is that you have your back to the enemy. You can't attack them. You can't even defend yourself. You have positioned yourself such that your only option really is just to keep going, just to keep on running and hope that you outrun your enemy. And so uh, on that day and in such circumstances, to, to turn... And to be the only one to turn and to stand and to stand your ground shows absolutely remarkable courage. And the courage of those two men on those two days was contagious. They were a a crystallization point around which others could attach themselves and join in. And in both instances, because of the courage of just one person, the Lord brought about a great victory, literally a great salvation. And Paul understood that these things had been written for us, upon whom has come the fulfillment of the ages. In other words, we live the reality We live the spiritual reality to which these physical pictures, physical shadows, point. Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, That is to say, our struggle is, our job is not to attack human beings, nor is our war to be fought against this group or that group. No, rather, 
Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, our war is against ideas and philosophies and thinking that raises itself up against Jesus and the gospel and the spiritual powers at work behind and through these things. Paul continues, therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Well, prayer is a battlefield for which we need the armour of God. Understandings, behaviours and thinkings that spring from biblical Christian faith. Paul continues, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Paul, uh, Paul, he's in chains. Um, he's under house arrest. And the last thing he wants, uh, now that he's in isolation, is to come down with a nasty case of fear. That could lead to further self-isolation for weeks. And it could lead him to be horribly contagious, infecting the ones he loves. But likewise, if he can act fearlessly, taking his stand even in the face of the Roman authorities, even Caesar himself, the human agency feared by all people in the world of his day, if he can take courage and act fearlessly, then many might catch his courage from him and declare the gospel fearlessly. They will copy him. Well, a few centuries later, the most feared person in all the world was the Pope. And the most feared agency or institution was the Roman Catholic Church. When that lot came in with Inquisition, all opposition fled or fainted. But Martin Luther stood his ground in refuting Catholic teachings from the Bible. And when asked to recant, in other words, when asked to change his mind and to beg the Pope's pardon, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I Stand. 
I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Well, uh, Martin, Luther, Martin Luther had learnt by that stage that he didn't need to go on the attack. Indeed, attack was counterproductive. He just needed to stand his ground. Although in desperate fear for his life, in his heart, deeply afraid, he found the courage to act courageously and his courage was contagious, spreading to others, infecting so much of Europe and sparking one of the most important philosophical and spiritual revolutions in history. Martin Luther King Jr. also understood that the temptation to attack was one to be resisted at all costs and that all he needed to do was stand. He feared for his life and he knew that that was an intelligent fear. But he knew that if he stood up to those who oppressed him, and for his people, many others would stand with him. And they did. The astonishing legacy of these two Martins continues today. David's legacy, Barnabas's legacy, Paul's legacy. Martin Luther's legacy, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. We are all Christ's legacy. And we leave a legacy only insofar as we copy Jesus, point to Jesus, follow Jesus. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen.